Uh, today's Bible reading comes from Leviticus chapter 2 and 3. So chapter 2, the grain offering. When someone brings a grain offering to the Lord, his offering is to be of fine flour. He is to pour oil on it, put incense on it, and take it to Aaron's sons, the priests. The priest shall take a, the priest shall take a handful of the fine flour and oil, together with all the incense, and burn this as a memorial portion on the altar, an offering made by fire, an aroma pleasing to the Lord. The rest of the grain offering belongs to Aaron and his sons. It is a most holy part of the offerings made to the Lord by fire. If you bring a grain offering baked in an oven, it is to consist of fine flour, cakes made without yeast and mixed with oil, or wafers made without yeast and spread with oil. If your grain offering is prepared on a griddle, it is to be made of fine flour mixed with oil and without yeast. Crumble it and pour oil on it. It is a grain offering. If your grain offering is cooked in a pan, it is to be made of fine flour and oil. Bring the grain offering made of these things to the Lord. Present it to the priest who shall take it to the altar. He shall take out the memorial portion from the grain offering and burn it on the altar as an offering made by fire, an aroma pleasing to the Lord. The rest of the grain offering belongs to Aaron and his sons. It is a most holy part of the offerings made to the Lord by fire. Every grain offering you bring to the Lord must be made without yeast, for you are not to burn any yeast or honey in an offering made to the Lord by fire. You may bring them to the Lord as an offering of the first fruits, for they are not to be offered on the altar as a pleasing aroma. Season all your grain offerings with salt. Do not leave the salt of the covenant of your God out of your grain offerings. Add salt to all your offerings. If you bring a grain offering of first fruits to the Lord, offer crushed heads of new grain roasted in the fire. Put oil and incense on it. It is a grain offering. The priest shall burn the memorial portion of the crushed grain and the oil, together with all the incense as an offering made to the Lord by fire. Chapter 3, the fellowship offering. If someone's offering is a fellowship offering and he offers an animal from the herd, whether male or female, he is to present before the Lord an animal without defect. He is to lay his hands on the head of his offering and slaughter it at the entrance to the tent of meeting. Then Aaron's sons, the priest, shall sprinkle the blood against the altar on all sides. From the fellowship offering, he is to bring a sacrifice made to the Lord by fire, or the fat that covers the inner parts or is connected to them, both kidneys with the fat on them near the loins, and the covering of the liver which he will remove with the kidneys. Then Aaron's sons are to burn it on the altar on top of the burnt offering that is on the burning wood as an offering made by fire an aroma pleasing to the Lord. If he offers an animal from the flock as a fellowship offering to the Lord, he is to offer a male or female without defect. If he offers a lamb, he is to present it before the Lord. He is to lay his hand on the head of his offering and slaughter it in the front of the tent of meeting. Then Aaron's son shall sprinkle its blood against the altar on all sides. From the fellowship offering, he is to bring a sacrifice made to the Lord by fire, its fat, the entire fat, tail cut off close to the backbone, or the fat that covers the inner parts or is connected to them, both kidneys with the fat on them near the loins, and the covering of the liver, which he will remove with the kidneys. The priest shall burn them on the altar as food, an offering made to the Lord by fire. If his offering is a goat, he is to present it before the Lord. He is to lay his hand on its head and slaughter it in front of the tent of meeting. Then Aaron's son shall sprinkle its blood against an altar on all sides. From what he offers, he is to make this offering to the Lord by fire. All the fat that covers the inner parts or is connected to them, both kidneys with the fat on them near the loins and the covering of the liver, which he will remove with the kidneys. The priest shall burn them on the altar as food, an offering made by fire, a pleasing aroma. All the fat is the Lord's. This is a lasting ordinance for the generations to come. Wherever you live, you must not eat any fat or any blood. All right. Uh, let me start by praying, guys. Uh, Lord, we thank you for your word in Leviticus. Um, please help us to see um, how you would have us live through your laws. Um, sometimes they can be hard to get through, but we ask that, uh, like your Old Testament people, you would refresh us through your laws. 
Um, please help us to learn to love your laws throughout this series. And please help us to understand what you're saying to us today. We pray that it might have real life consequences for us. Amen. Okay. Part of our um, skepticism with Leviticus, maybe a big part, is that it seems like it has nothing to do, uh, nothing to teach us about how to live for God in the new covenant era. Because that's what we're concerned with as Christians, right? How do we give our bodies as a whole living sacrifice to God? Romans 12.1. Leviticus, on the other hand, is concerned with laws and long sets of repetitive laws. Case in point is our passage today, right? We're into our second section of Leviticus now. And you must have noticed this is really similar to the first section. Without the chapter numbers, you'd be forgiven for thinking that we just accidentally read the same passage twice. Sure, the first week was talking about what's called burnt offerings. And the ones this week are called grain offerings and fellowship offerings. But beyond that, they're looking pretty similar. You've got to wonder, and maybe some of the Israelites were wondering, how many offerings does God need? People were already offering bulls and sheep and birds, but that's not enough. Now he wants flatbread and he wants thick bread and he wants oil and he wants incense and then he wants more bulls and more sheep and more goats. How many offerings does God need? It seems like he wants it all. As Christians, we know the answer is he doesn't need anything, right? He doesn't need animals. He doesn't need grain. He doesn't need worship. But as Christians, we actually have a similar problem. We know he doesn't need any sacrifice or any worship, but he asks for it all, right? Again, Romans 12, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. Mark 10, go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Luke 14, to those of you who do not give up everything you have, you can't be my disciples. So it seems like with God, it's a zero-sum game. Everything he gives to us, we have to give back to him. Our loss is his gain, his loss is our gain, and it just keeps going back and forward. Our passage today in Leviticus really helps us with that question. The sacrifices in Leviticus actually reveal something deeper that we might not pick up in the New Testament. This was daily life as the people of God. And it might surprise you, but I think this passage actually helps us as new covenant believers figure out how this works as we look deeply into it, and then we'll figure out how our own lives work. Even though we don't hold to the old covenant anymore, it actually has a really important role in guiding and instructing us as Christians. It's exactly what it did for the Israelites. And we hope today, if we look closely and deeply, it'll do the same for us. We know God gives us everything and we know we should give back everything, but how do we do it? All right, so let's have a closer look. Notice verse 1, it begins with when anyone. If you remember last week, I made a big deal about when anyone. So when told us these offerings were voluntary. They came not from obligation like some of the later offerings, but from the heart. Anyone told us this was for any person in all of humanity who would listen. Implicitly, if you heard God's word and you wanted to do what God said, you are one of his people. So to any of God's people whose heart was willing, he gives them these two instructions, these two offerings. So first, the grain offering, which is exactly what it sounds like. It's an offering of grain. As usual, it's to be the best of its kind. Here it's fine flour. Not coarse, unrefined flour, but flour that's had the extra time put into it to make it fine, to ground it down which is probably a super laborious job in that time. Add to that oil and add to that incense, and that's your grain offering. Verses 1 to 3, you could offer it raw, or 4 to 10, you could bake it or griddle it or pan fry it. Verses 4 to 16, 
Uh, if it was first fruits, like fresh grain, you could just crush it and offer that. So it seems like you have freedom in the preparation of this offering. Maybe you were Israel's top flatbread maker, then you could offer flatbread that could come from your heart. Or maybe you make things worse when you're cooking it. Maybe then you offer raw grain. Maybe that could come from your heart. But you only have to give your finest. It has to be your finest. And verse 11, never, never add honey or yeast. It doesn't tell us why. People have different theories, like maybe honey and yeast were used to offer to other gods, like non-Israelite gods, and so the Jews were to be set apart. Or maybe the honey and, and yeast uh, would start a fermentation process and fermentation is a bit likened to death. Uh, so maybe like we don't want that in the food that we offer God. But really, we just don't know because neither of those explanations, which are interesting, really explains what you can't use honey and yeast here in this offering, but you can in other offerings, like it says in verse 12. So we don't really know why, but in any case... The instruction is clear. Never, never use honey or yeast in grain offerings. So it seems like it's a careful, meticulous offering like the other previous burnt offerings. There are things you can do. There are things you can't do. And though this, is, this offering is much less costly than an animal, it's not valueless. It's your finest flour. And there's moderate value in oil and in incense. So you add it all together and it's quite costly. It's much less costly than the animals. So it would probably find its place as a more common sacrifice offered day in and day out. And there's a fair bit of freedom in offering it as well. But what is the purpose? I think verse 13 tells us that. As clear as it was, as clear as the instruction was to not add honey or yeast, it's much clearer that the Israelites must always add salt. It says, verse 13, season all your grain offerings with salt. Do not leave the salt of the covenant of your God out of your grain offerings. Add salt to all of your offerings. Basically, it says the same thing three times. Use salt. Don't not use salt. Use salt. But why? Why emphasize salt like this? Why is it so important? There's only two other mentions of this salt of the covenant of God in the Bible. Once in Numbers and once in two Chronicles. And in both instances, it's talking about a covenant that's everlasting. A covenant, a promise, a relationship that will never, ever be broken. And so we start to get the hint that the purpose of these grain offerings, its small cost in compared to other offerings, uh, is to be more frequent to be a constant reminder of the covenant. It's a reinforcing or a remembering that God um, is your God and you are his people. And when you look at grain offerings in other parts of the Old Testament, there's ideas of reverence and gratitude and allegiance. So when you put all that together, it seems like it's just a voluntary gift that you give to God, the person you owe allegiance to, um, that remembers and that enacts the covenant and continues the covenant between the two of you, in this case, God and the Israelites. So taking, taking a big picture look at this, it's a regular offering, maybe even everyday offering of a person walking in covenant with God. There's no obligation to do it, but in doing it, they, they remember the covenant. It's a small gift that has a big significance in the life of a follower, small, constant offerings to God. So the life of the Israelite, the person trying to follow God, is not too different to our own. We're looking and we struggle to find those little day-to-day -day things that we can do to remind ourselves that actually we're God's people and to enact the fact that we're God's people. In chapter 3, we've got the second offering, got the fellowship offering. It's a bit of a strange name, uh, and it's a hard-to-translate name. So the NIV says fellowship, but if you're looking at different translations, it might say something like peace offering 
or even something like deliverance offering. And that's because the root of the word translated as fellowship, the word shalom, which you might have heard before, carries all those different concepts in one word. It's the idea of peace or the idea of wholeness or the idea of um, relational goodness, being okay. That's the kind of idea behind the fellowship offering. So this is a bigger offering than the others. The grain offering was a bit more day-to-day, but this offering, being an animal sacrifice, was a lot bigger. And you can kind of guess that just from the costliness, grain versus animals. It seems really similar to the burnt offerings. Like the burnt offering, it can be from the cattle or the flock. It must be unblemished. And it's slaughtered at the tent of meeting and its blood is splashed on the altar. But the big difference is that it's not all burnt. In ancient Middle Eastern culture, or even in maybe current Middle Eastern culture, the fatty portions and the key organs were considered the prime parts of the animal. That's the best thing you could have out of a a cow or a sheep. So it's the best part of the animal that's burnt. And that best part being burnt creates a pleasing aroma to God, a lot like the burnt offering again. So in this costly sacrifice, God gets the best bits, but not all of it. Strangely, it doesn't tell us what to do with the rest of the animal. Presumably, it's not just sitting there decaying because we'll later learn that that's unclean. What happens to it is probably just considered common knowledge amongst the Israelites of the time. So it doesn't need to say it. It wants to focus us on the part that goes to God. But for us, who are not very familiar with these practices, we'll find out in chapter 7 that the rest of the animal was to be eaten by the priests and the worshippers and not eaten over an extended period of time, but eaten all on the same day. The whole animal, every bit of meat that was left over, gone in one day. If you imagine offering a whole bull, it's not the type of thing you could eat on your own in one day. Even a family of people, plus the priests, probably couldn't eat a whole bull in one day. You would need a clan to come and eat and clean up a bull in a single day. So this offering is basically an abundance of food. In chapter 3, verse 11, it actually calls the food offering to God actual food, literally bread, although some translations don't always bring that out. So there's lots of people gathered around, and God has food, and worshippers have food, and priests have food. So the enactment of the fellowship offering, the enactment of peace and wholeness and good relationships of shalom is concretely expressed as a feast, as a huge celebration between God and his people. If you go back to the Garden of Eden, there was Adam and Eve, God's people, with lots of food, lots of trees there to eat from, and they were eating God's presence all the time. After they were kicked out of the garden, access to eating with God disappeared as well. And between that time and Leviticus, I can only find two instances where people got to eat with God again. Once with Abraham, once with Moses. Maybe there's others, but there's definitely not many. I think there's just those two. Until we get here to Leviticus again. And suddenly, when we get to Leviticus, people can eat with God again. And if you remember back to chapter 2, verse 1, the very start of our passage, when anyone, actually anyone can eat with God whenever they want. The laws of Leviticus are restoring what's lost between God and his people. So these sacrifices aren't about just giving to God, but it's about living out a relationship with him in the small day-to-day things like the grain offerings, you remember the covenant, and in the big things where you celebrate life's events. So the Israelites have an amazing privilege. 
something that was lost in the Garden of Eden, God gives back through the laws. And even more so now with us in the New Covenant era, we experience that even more. But this brings us back to the problem at the start of our sermon. It's special to say that day to day we're reminded of our covenant with God. And even more special that in covenant we can eat with God. Those are amazing things. But what does that mean for the everyday Israelite? Were you meant to give every loaf of bread to God? Were you meant to sacrifice every single bull as a fellowship offering to God? In some ways, this, the goodness of these sacrifices increases our problem because the sacrifices are so good and the, the experience of them is so good and so useful. Why wouldn't you offer every single piece of bread to God? Why wouldn't you offer every single bull you had to God and experience eating with him? The answer, I think, is in how God tells us to offer it to him. In chapter 3, we mentioned the whole animal is sacrificed, but only God takes a portion of it, the best portion. But the rest is given to the people. And actually, in chapter 2, we didn't mention it before, but the same thing happens in the grain offering. The whole bread is offered, but only a handful of it is burnt. The rest goes to the priest. And actually, the part that goes to the priest is the most holy part. Chapter 2, verses 3 and 10. The part the priest gets is called the most or a most holy part. It's not an afterthought. The part that doesn't get burnt is actually still God's. It's not like I'll take a little bit, I don't want the rest. It's all his, the part that gets burnt, the part that doesn't. But the priest gets to experience what is God's now. It's still God's. It's most holy. So what is burnt to God? Just the key portion. But what's considered as being offered to God? All of it, 100% of it. The whole thing is offered by offering a representative portion. The handful of flour represents the whole offering of flour. And really the offering of the finest flour represents your intentions for all of your flour. If you don't hold back your best from God, then in God's eyes, you don't hold back anything at all. Same with the fellowship offering. Only the fat portion of the animal was offered, but it represented the whole animal because it was the best part. And the fact that it was the best of your herd shows that you have that intention with your whole herd. And that should start to sound a little familiar to our New Testament use. So Paul in Romans, thinking about the importance of Christ, says this about God. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, that's Christ, graciously give us all things? If God gives us his best portion, his son, we know he'll give us everything. In God's case, this is literally true. He gave us his son, he will therefore give us everything. Because his son was the best part. Why would he hold back anything else? And so in Leviticus, long before Christ came, God gives us this pattern. If you give him your best, then how will you not give him everything? We, unlike God, can't literally give him everything because we're finite. We need some food to live. We need some water, we need some celebration, we need some of all these things. But God generously looks at our heart. If we offer him the best, he accepts that as offering everything. So yes, God deserves everything. And yes, we ought to give him everything. But in a practical sense, he knows that we need food much more than he does. We need Bulls much more than he does. And so our offerings aren't about literally giving him everything. 
but being willing to. And showing him that, enacting that, living that out concretely by giving him our best. He's a generous and an understanding God. And what an amazing way to now start to understand sacrifices in the new covenant in our lives. We're not just giving him the food he gave back to us in like this endless cycle of kind of spinning food back and forth. He doesn't need it. When we give to God, we're showing him our, our allegiance by giving him the best that we have. We're finite, so we can't give him everything like he can give us everything. But God treats the best portion as though we've given him all of it. So when Paul tells us to offer our whole bodies as living sacrifices, when we hear as Christians that God deserves everything we have, right? He's given us everything and he deserves everything that we have. It's true. But how do you actually do this? God's really practical. You give him the best part and he'll accept that as all of it. So I think that answers a lot of questions when it comes to church. Why do we give money? Why do we give time? Why do we sing? Why do we worship? God doesn't want any of that. But all of those things are gifts he's given to us. And if we offer it back to him, the best part of it, then he accepts that as us offering our whole lives to him. So we kind of talked about in church announcement, starting on time. If we don't give God our best time, we haven't given God all of our time. But if we can give him the best portion, right, if we can wake up a little bit earlier, if we can come a little bit earlier, give him our best, he accepts that as all of it. With money, right? God doesn't need our money. You give it to church. It goes to practical things like the priest, right, in, in chapter 2. The priest gets to eat the bread because he needs food. Same as church, right? God doesn't, when you give offerings to church, God doesn't somehow get the money. He doesn't need it. We can't get it to him. goes to the church. But the act of you giving of your best to church shows that you would give him your whole life, all of your money, singing if you sing if you sing as best as your skill allows god takes that as true genuine worship for all of your life so as we think about sacrifice in the modern life of the christian we don't have to be overwhelmed with guilt that we have to give everything i give i give god 10 percent of my money but that's not enough i need to increase it to 20 and 30 and 40 and 90. Maybe if God gives you a lot of money, you can do that. But for most people who have average income, God doesn't expect that, right? He knows you need the money to give. He doesn't need it. What he wants is your best. Will you take the first portion of your money and give it to him? Will you take the first portion of your time and give it to him? He doesn't want to burden you with it, but you... He wants you to enact giving him everything by giving him the best. So how do you live your life as a living sacrifice? Give him the best of what you've been given. And then God generously accepts that as your whole life being given to him. It's the way of the Christian life. Enacted out in Leviticus and mirrored in the new covenant life as well let me pray heavenly father we thank you for your generosity um, as our god as the creator of all things the giver of all things there's nothing that we have that doesn't come from you and so we thank you god for all that you've given us and we thank you that you're also generous and understanding in knowing that we need these things so you um you deserve all of it back, but we just can't give it back because we're finite. So, Lord, we thank you that you accept the best portions as our whole offering. Thank you that in your generosity, we can give a little and it can be counted as a great thing. 
We ask, Lord, that you would give us generous hearts to give you more and more of time, of money, of love, of all those things that we treasure. We ask that you'll help us to give you the best of that. Amen. Okay. Uh, now it is time for Q&A. And uh, I would like to ask Robin John to come back up here. I think we do have a few questions already up on the Padlet. But before we get to that, uh, how about any of you guys here uh, have any questions? If you do, please raise your hand and we'll bring a microphone to you so that uh, people at home can hear your question as well. No? All right, that's fine. Um, no, anything on Zoom uh, before we head to Padlet? No? All right. Let's get on to the Padlet. Uh, Nelly, if you can uh, zoom that in a bit, that'd be great. So we can read it. <laughs> okay, first questions. Perhaps yeast and honey is a symbolic of sin, uh, therefore not suitable to be sacrificed on the altar. Possible connection to Samson, scooping and eating honey from the dead carcass and giving it to his family to eat as well. Yes equals fermentations. Uh, yes of uh, the Pharisee. <laughs> someone, uh, someone knows their Bible well. It's really good. Um, yeah, I did. I did consider that. Um, the big problem with that is that it's acceptable in other offerings. Mm -hmm. So if you represent sin, presumably sin wouldn't be acceptable in any offering. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I think it. Yeah, I, I don't know. Um, the Samson thing is interesting. I think the it's probably more that the honey came from a dead lion than that it was honey. Mm. It's mm. more that it touched the dead thing and so it became unclean as well. Mm. Um, interesting to think about, uh, but I don't, yeah, I, I don't think it represents sin. Uh, interestingly, the, the yeast thing I think um, is kind of right, like, but maybe works in the other other way. So it's not like saying yeast is like the Pharisees, but going in order of how it was revealed, the Pharisees are like yeast. They're like a little a little tiny thing that can get into an acceptable offering that suddenly makes it unacceptable. Mm. And so yeasts are like Pharisee uh, as opposed to the other way around. That might have been what you're saying anyway, so um, yeah. I'm not sure. But, yeah, I think it's the yeasts. Pharisees are like yeast, not yeast is like Pharisees. Okay. I hope yeah, that answers very that good question. Very uh, yeah, def definitely a very good question. Uh, next one, Nelly, uh, if you can scroll down. Uh, yep. Andrew. Andrew. Uh, of, uh, well, biologically, we're mainly Chinese, but are we spiritual Jews? Are we so oh, tricky? Are we spiritual Jews? Uh, I guess, like, okay, so a couple of parts to this answer, I think. Uh, in some sense, yes, because the Bible describes us uh, as being grafted into the Jewish branch. So we're an, an external branch grafted onto the Jewish branch. And so we get to share in the Jewish blessings. Uh, but then you kind of go back to Abraham. And the promises to Abraham are always to the whole world. Um, so I think, I, I think you could, in some ways, correctly view us as part of, as an extension of the Jewish um, nation. But probably what's happened is that we're a new thing. We're not spiritual Jews. We're something new. So Ephesians 2 talks about... The Chinese word for spiritual Jews is lean wound, lean wound woman. That means we, our, our, you know, the body, mind, soul uh, was part of us before we became Christians. Unless we, that's because Adam and Eve, when they, they sinned, their spirit died. Now, now, when we believe in the second Adam, Jesus, that spirit, it's a spirit, you know, comes, you know, we become born again, we rekindle, you know? So I, I think our Jewish friends, and, and he told me, he said, his name is Eric Moses, he says, he said, you, you, you are children of Abraham too. 
<laughs> I said, only through Jesus. <laughs> only through yes. Jesus. Yeah, we so, are children uh, of Abraham, yeah. only through Jesus. <laughs> and, Our spirit Yes, yeah. So that I, I think in some sense we're spiritual Jews, but really we're a new creation. Uh, so Ephesians 2 talks about the dividing wall of hostility being torn down between Jews and Gentiles. So when the old covenant's gone, the reason for Jews to be separate is gone. And so God makes a new thing that's like Jew and Gentile together, his new creation, which is the church. Uh, so maybe in some aspects we're spiritual Jews, but I think the best way to view it is that we're something new at the, at the moment anyway. Yep. Who knows? Okay, thanks for that. Uh, let's move on to the next question. And Padlet is, how do you reconcile Jesus as a, as a sacrifice that end all sacrifice and the idea of ongoing sacrifice as we live as living sacrifices mm. today? Man, oh, question. Far out. another good question. <laughs> um, I did think about this a little bit before. Um, so uh, what, what we've been pointing out in Leviticus 1 to 3 is that these offerings are all voluntary when anyone, when anyone. So anyone can do it whenever they feel like they want to do these. Uh, later on in Leviticus, I, I think basically from the next chapter, there's obligatory um, sacrifices. So if you do this, if you sin or if you X, Y, Z, you must do this. Mm. Um, so there's kind of a, I don't know if it's right to divide it like this or not, but there's kind of like, ex, I don't even know how you say it, expiatory, expiatory. <laughs> so basically, um, sacrifices that kind of make up for sins and then there's other sacrifices so what i think is happening is jesus is the sacrifice is all those sacrifices that we must do because we've sinned we've done xyz or whatever um those sins jesus paid for in full mm. these sins uh, sorry these sacrifices aren't about paying for sins they're about living with god so sacrifice isn't just the thing that you do when you have to do it, but it's a thing that you do all the time as a Christian because you want to do it, because you love God, because you love each other. Mm. Um, so the, I think the idea of Jesus' sacrifice, maybe separating it slightly, understanding Jesus' sacrifice as an, as an expiatory. Expiate is the, real, <laughs> is the root word, and then whatever the, I don't know, longer version says. <laughs> is what I think Jesus has done. Mm. And then the sacrifices of living life, of relating to God, is just us living life, right? Mm. So we, part of the Christian life is just sacrifice, mm. uh, where we remember God, where we are thankful to God, where we remember his covenant, where we celebrate with him. Yeah. They all involve sacrifice. Mm. Um, yep. And Susan, <laughs> Would that second part be like an expression of our love yeah. to God, not so much like it's for an atonement for sin as yeah. such, yep. but the way we express our love? Yeah. So I think Jesus is taking care of the atonement for sin sacrifices, sacrifice that once for all, but then the sacrifices to live day to day as we just love God, as we love other people. Because like all of those sacrifices that we've looked at today um, the sacrifice to God has repercussions for other people, as in the priest gets to eat the bread and everyone gets to celebrate the fellowship offering. So when we sacrifice to God, it kind of has outward effects as well. Um, so, yeah, the, the Jesus thing is like the... Um, I'm going to just stop trying to say that. Jesus thing are like the, the repentance sin, the repentance sacrifices, and then the living as a, your, your life as a sacrifice is the um, voluntary life sacrifices. Mm. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> good questions. Yeah. Uh, good questions. Next one. Uh, God sacrificed himself and we sacrifice to God. What's so good about <laughs> sacrifice? <laughs> yeah, okay. That's another, that's actually a really good question. What's so... Time and future, 
yes, yeah. Atonement is a sacrifice of sins for the whole world. And when the last person to believe in Jesus, when that happens, he'll come back again. But until then, we don't know when. But because of that atoning sacrifice and his blood is God, he can save as many people as, 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 as can be who will believe in him. As many. There's no limit because this is not just man's blood. It's God's blood. Yeah. So the atoning sacrifice he did in three hours. I'm not going to uh, explicit. I'd, I'd like to read some more on that. But uh, that, that is the, uh, the, the thing that the, uh, what, what the important thing you have to have to stop it when it comes to atonement. Because, uh, I mean... We, we all pray that we won't be persecuted, right? I, I, my sister's a medical doctor when we were at school year 11. You know, she, she said, you know, uh, uh, we hope we, we, we don't we have, you know, our faith and not be persecuted until death, you know, that kind of situation. And, and we hope that that will be, that's our prayer, you know? Hmm. So when you say atonement and sacrifice, you've got to be careful that that sacrifice that Jesus did was for all times. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, definitely agree. So Andrew, uh, in case you missed the first part, Andrew was clarifying Jesus' one-time sacrifices for all of our sins once off. And I 100% agree. So that's the atoning section of it. And then we live out a life of sacrifice. So to this question, God sacrifices himself and we sacrifice the old city. Yeah, um, I, can't, I can't really answer what is so good about it. Like there's some things that God kind of just tells us to do or I guess if you start off assuming that God is the definition of goodness, basically anything that God does is a good thing. Uh, and that anything we God, that God does where we kind of mimic it in our own ways as much as we can. Um, so I think sacrifice is good just because God sacrifices. That's almost like a circular thing. I can't give you a reason uh, because like the, it's kind of asking a really like, high level question and the most high level um starting point we have is god so it's kind of one of those questions that just goes back to because god is like that mm. so like why is love good and hate not good because so god is love is not hate is love and so love is good and not and hate is the antithesis or apathy is the antithesis mm. um so what's so good about sacrifice uh in a practical sense, I'll try and give you a practical answer as well. Um, I think what the passage today shows us is that the sacrifice of one person can have a lot of good effects for other people. Mm. So the sacrifice of one Israelite giving a bull or giving bread um, brings good things to all the people around him. Mm. Uh, so sacrifice is good because it, it does good and sacrifice is good because God sacrifices. It's probably the best I can give. <laughs> I think uh, when it, when he says what's so good about sacrifices, when you do sacrifice, you should show respect to God, and you want, it's you're following God's instruction. That's one of God's law. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. obedience as well. Yeah, obedience so shows obedience. obedience yeah. yeah, and also God sacrificed because He loved us, hmm. so we should do the same for Him. Hmm. You know? Yeah, yeah. like yeah, kind of on that. Like all those parts of God—love, sacrifice, mm. justice. Yep. They're not really separate parts in God. It's kind of just like this one whole thing yep. that you might call godliness or holiness, right? That's right. Yep. This is, so we, we kind of separate it out because we understand it a bit better, but mm. all those things are intertwined. You sacrifice because you love, because you're obedient, because you're holy. Yep. And you're holy because you're sacrificing love. And so exactly. It's, like it's a, all one big circle. Yeah. <laughs> one. Okay. Um, next one is thank you, John, for the reminder. How else can we give our best to God within church? And in our day-to-day lives. Hmm. Um, yeah, so these, these offerings, um, the Old Covenant is kind of just a narrower view of, uh, how do I say this? The Old Covenant kind of like restricts the world to a smaller thing. Hmm. So sacrifice now is like everything. Yep. Sacrifice in Leviticus was bread and bulls. Um, so we can kind of get an idea of what sacrifice is now by understanding that bread and bulls can can really expand their categories a lot. Mm. Uh, so how else can mm. we best give our best to God within church and with uh, and in our day to day lives? Mm. So basically, the idea behind the sacrifices is that you give something costly to God 
for the benefit of others. So if you look at it in that kind of maybe abstract way, you can see that that could maybe fit into a lot of things. So if, if you're giving like small things, um, it's a bit of a reminder of the covenant. So something small might be, um, oh yeah, it's hard to come up with random examples. I think you, you mentioned, uh, cover, uh, you covered a bit about uh, in terms of the church, yep. giving up your time and be here on time. That's a sacrifice yeah, so that's of like, your time to be here. That's one, yeah. yeah, that's one small way to give your time to yeah, God. Exactly. You might and, also. And serving as well. Like I would yeah. say that it so, is a sacrifice of your time uh, yeah. that you give to, to, to commit to serving yeah. uh, the service and, and, you know, involved in, in running the, the day-to-day service. Yep. Yeah. I think kind of um, outside of church circles, mm. I think also showing, say, showing love to others and mm. loving your neighbor. So maybe listening to someone yep. patiently takes a lot of time and a lot of like emotional energy, yep. especially if they're like, it's like, why are you telling me this? Mm. <laughs> or it's like, why are you saying this? Mm. Um, that can take a lot of time and energy. Yep. But I think something like that could also be classified as a, a gift to God because within the covenant of God, that's how he tells us that. So by giving him giving that person that slice of time, which is really hard and precious to you. Mm. Um, that could be an example of how you give a small thing to represent everything in your life. Yep, yep. Um, and obviously we have our limits as Christians, right? You can't give everything to everyone because yep. uh, we're just human. Um, but something like that, giving time in listening, um, giving patience in driving. So like I'm, I'm a late person by nature, very flexible with time, mm-hmm. you know, like, 11.15 is 11.15-ish. Um, <laughs> but that also makes me on the road a very, like, rushed driver, right? Because <laughs> I'm, like, leaving late. I'm like, that's all right. Yeah. But then on the road, I realise, oh, it's not all right. Um, so I'm, like, pushing the lights, pushing the speed limit. Yeah. And so, but, like, driving patiently, giving other people room to, to mm. move in and out of lanes, all those little things are a sacrifice of your time because it means I actually have to get out of the house earlier. Yeah. So sacrificing your time because in love for others, because that's God's instruction to us in the new covenant, is also an example of, oh, I'll give him this portion, which is precious to me, mm. uh, and take that as, as my whole offering. Yep. And, then say, and then just expand that to money, expand that to skills, expand that to relationships, all that stuff. Yep. Okay, I think we have a few more, is it? Or... Uh, um. Next one, uh, well, the last two is that uh, from a monetary offering point of view, it's mentioned teething in the Old Testament, but not in the New Testament. It's interesting that for the grain offering, it doesn't mention how much to give of flour or fresh grain. Is there a good starting point or guide of how much to give? Yeah, um, yeah, you're right. It, it, most of the tithing thing, I think, only comes up right at the end of Leviticus for like one uh, one offering. I can't remember which one. We'll get to it eventually. Mm. So the tithing mm. thing is is like ten percent isn't like this special number that's found in the Old Testament. It's pretty rare in the Old Testament, um, and that probably explains why it's not mentioned in the New Testament because it was like it was never really a thing in the Old Testament. Mm. Um, so what is a yeah? And you're right. Like good observation. It doesn't tell you how much to give. Right. Yep. It leaves that to the giver. It's voluntary. It's like you give how much you feel like giving almost. You're capable. How much, yeah, yeah. How much has God's, how much generosity has God given you? How much do you see that generosity? That's how much you give. Mm. Uh, so what's a good starting point or guide? Um, I think a good starting point or guide is to make sure it comes as your first fruits. So in our, in our kind of current culture, current world, we have things like tax, which comes out before we ever see the money. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have things like super that comes out before we see the money. Mm-hmm. Um, all those sorts of things are taking basically the first fruits, right? They're getting first dibs at the things that we're meant to give God. So I think when you calculate how much God is, when you're, when you're trying to figure out how much God to give God, calculate it before all those things. I think that's maybe a practical way to think about it so that in your head you're giving the first part of it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not like, after I pay tax, after I do my groceries and pay for the petrol mm. and service the car, I'll just give you know, 5% what's yeah. left. Yeah. 
it's like take that right to the top of top, your yep. balance sheet or whatever and work your way down mm -hmm. and it'll be harder because that's your best part suddenly that's a lot harder um and you still have to take into so again like god doesn't want everything from you he knows you need that money right yep. so if you're earning less money you might just take ten dollars off the top maybe 20 or 100 mm, mm. um if you're earning a lot of money take more take 10 percent. take 20 percent. if you're if you're like a billionaire you can probably live off one percent of your money really yep. <laughs> no, no one here's a billionaire right? <laughs> um yeah but yeah good question I, I would say you can start by making sure it's the first thing that comes out yeah. and that'll hurt more as long as it comes from your heart and you genuinely want to give yeah um and for god's best interest yeah and, and just as a reminder like none of this is forced right no so it's like maybe some weeks you don't give yeah. if that's if that's kind of what's happening in your life you don't give yeah but generally you want to be living a life of sacrifice that's right yeah and god knows your heart you know first of for, for most he knows your heart yeah you know, if you really want to give but you can't afford it mm. that's good enough for god i reckon yeah you know? um i think the last two is a <laughs> is more of not a question but more yeah, of a statement i like it um, okay <laughs> great sermon today john i thought leviticus was as dry as the sahara but it's actually as juicy as watermelon on a summer day yeah, um, so i agree definitely agree <laughs> i'm glad someone's liking it that's really good <laughs> juicy um, watermelon, yes sorry. yes and, uh, and the last comment is that god's commandment I think this is more of an encouragement. Uh, God's commandment is for us to love others. Loving others can sometimes mean serving and being there for them. Sacrificial love. This is our response for God who loves us first. We love because he first loved us. Definitely. Yeah, yeah. I agree with that. Yeah. Yep. And it's great that you're thinking through and coming to those conclusions. That's really encouraging. Yep. Love okay. You. Thank you, John. That was a long Q&A, but I think it was worth it. Uh, and good answers too, John. <laughs>